Before the RouterFlex podcast episode of the day, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Sean DeClerc on the RouterFlex podcast. Sean, what's up? How you doing? Hey, Steve. Uh, doing well. Glad to be here today. Cool story, man. I was looking up Kick Further uh, this morning uh, when I was uh, getting having some coffee, getting ready for the podcast, and I listened to some of uh, your previous podcasts while I was on the treadmill. So I love the story. I had heard of Kick Further because I live in Colorado near Boulder. So I had heard of it, but I hadn't really, you know, studied it. Didn't I mean I knew kind of what what it was, but not really. And so it was cool getting into it. Congrats! You've had it now for for what six seven years? Yeah, coming up on our seven year anniversary in August. Awesome, man. Before we get into the details, though, tell me about Sean, uh, the person. <laughs> well, give me give me some early life stuff. Maybe some family, mom, dad, siblings. Talk to me a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I'm a first generation American uh, philosophy student dropout of Rutgers University. And, uh, you know, I kind of say I've, I've always described myself as a lifelong entrepreneur. So I like to tell the story that like way back in the day um, when I was 14 years old, one of the games my dad got from this company called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if you've heard of that company. They're like a yeah like kind of like a hustle, like one of the early hustle like organizations, you know? Um, and the game was called Cash Flow. And I remember this game because it had this rat on the cover and it's like how to get out of the rat race. And, and this was when we were like 14 years old, we played it on Christmas day. And it was all about how, you know, uh, the only way you can get out of the rat race is by, you know, having some kind of passive income stream, right? And, you know, one of the best ways to do that is to have a business that makes money where you don't have to work a nine to five uh, if you own a business that actually produces revenue for you. And I was like, wow, that seems really smart. What, why doesn't everybody just own a business, right? Like that seems like the thing to do. That's how you win the game. That's how you win the rat race, you know? Uh, so I knew early on, I was like, yeah, it's got to get a business, you know, uh, that's the way you win. And, and so I just kind of, had that lens from a very early stage in my life. Was your was your dad an entrepreneur? Yeah, so my parents, um, they you know did like the ultimate evil of starting a business kind of together. <laughs> my mom and my dad. So they ran a sourcing company um, with an office in Beijing, China, and an office here in, uh, well, a, an office in New Jersey. And so, I'm a so, first generation American. So they're okay, my mom's okay. Chinese, my dad's Belgian. I see. Okay, very cool. Uh, so they um, sourcing as in like uh, if I wanted to make, I don't know, coffee cups uh, and I was in America, I would call your mom and dad and say, hey, can you find me a manufacturer to make these coffee cups? That type of deal. Yeah, exactly. Except it was more like, hey, I'm it's like not such a pretty story today, but it's like, hey, I'm making coffee cups in Pennsylvania for like two dollars a cup. And if I make them in China, I can make them for 50 cents a cup, right? And improve my margins very dramatically. So there was like mm -hmm. a huge globalization of manufacturing that happened in like the 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. And my parents ran their business on, you know, really helping to outsource manufacturing to China. Uh, how'd your mom and dad meet? 
that's a crazy story. Uh, so my dad, I like to say, is one of the first white people in China. So he was a, a student at ANU in Australia. And um, Australia opened up diplomatic relationships or diplomatic relations with China like early on. So he went there as a student, one of like literally one of the first white people that got into China. He's been wow. there for more than 40 years. Um, so he went there when he was 22 years old. Um, as a student, as part of this like Australian little diplomatic trip. And then they met at some like random little uh, party that was, you know, this was still when like the cool. politics in China were super strict. And uh -huh. the way my dad tells the story is that he pretty much got a meet a, a visit from one of the like political people. And they were like, listen, you got to either marry this Chinese woman or you have to stop dating her because wow. we don't like what's going on here. Like wow. these, these were the dark, like the communism days of China, you know? So, <laughs> oh um, so yeah, they got married like after dating very little time and, uh, and then they emigrated to Australia and they had a second marriage in Australia. Oh, they did. Okay. Where do they live now? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all over, M mostly in America, but they spend, they have uh, some property in Australia as well. Okay. Where'd you graduate high school? I was born and raised in New Jersey. So I graduated high school in New Jersey and then I went to Rutgers for way too long. And then I started the business. Uh, okay. Any siblings? Yeah. Older brother and an older sister. So none of the, the three children were involved in the uh, sourcing business? Uh, so I worked within the family business for like probably a year or a year and a half. Uh, but it's always kind of been this philosophy that we've had that like nepotism is not a good thing, you know, and like when you when you work within the family organization, you get like more opportunities and kind of an unfair way. And it doesn't teach you the right lessons about the world was kind of like our philosophy, right, that like you should earn earn your own way was kind of the theory. Okay. Okay. So you dropped out of now. Were you working for the family business part time while you were going to school at Rutgers? Uh, I took a sabbatical from Rutgers, so I've, I'm, I've never been the best student, and I always found I learned more and I was happier when I was working. So, yeah, I took a sabbatical in my junior year, and I worked for a year and a half. Okay, and then never went back? No, and then I went back and then did, you know, a semester here, a semester there, while I was kind of, like, figuring out, like, oh, let's, let's try this for a little bit, you know, and then, you know, one thing would go, one thing wouldn't. So, yeah, I, I just kind of, I literally have four credits left to finish my philosophy degree, and then as I was enrolled to complete the degree, I got accepted into an accelerator in Colorado oh, for see. the business. And it was like, yeah. either start my business or complete a philosophy degree. And that seemed like a no brainer. Okay. So you were chasing the entrepreneurial stuff, kind of going to school. Why philosophy though? Did you just pick that? Cause you were like, okay, I'll just major in this. I know I'm going to be a business owner and an entrepreneur, but whatever. I'll just major in philosophy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, so I always liked philosophy. It's one of those things where, you know, I do think the adage of like learning how to think, you know, kind of applies. Um, I, I enjoyed logic in philosophy. So that was one of, that's probably what drew me to philosophy more than anything else. And okay. when I was young, I was a very argumentative. And so initially we were, th I was thinking that, you know, I would take a philosophy degree into, you know, law school and then maybe become a lawyer. And I, I decided that wasn't the life for me. Were you, uh, so you were pretty headstrong, opinionated uh, kid uh, when you were young, were you like, I, I know everything and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, all that <laughs> super confident. Yeah. 
Definitely a little bit of that. Also, like maybe even more devil's advocate, right? Like always trying to take the other side to like argue for the sake of arguing, I think is like how people would, around me would characterize it. You got that from your mom or your dad? Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're going, you're in college, you're trying stuff. You want to be an entrepreneur. What You got accepted into the accelerator program in Boulder. Had you been out West? Like, well, I guess you were all around the world, I guess, but had you been to Colorado before you got accepted? Uh, no. So we just applied all online, kind of Googled, like okay. so I, we, we applied to a pitch competition with the business model and then we lost. And one of the judges was told me, oh, you should apply to accelerators. They're actually interested in your type of business that has high growth potential. And I was like, what's an accelerator? <laughs> so then that night I went home, you know, Googled like how to apply to accelerators. Right. And then put in seven applications. We got into uh, Boomtown in Colorado. Hadn't even really heard about Boulder or like knew the the, the scene out there, you know? Okay. And then I go okay. and I just looked into it. I was like, wow, this town looks awesome. You know, like home yeah. of tech stars and all this yeah. other good stuff. So yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting. Who's, who's we, you said we, you had some co-founders and what was the, and what was the early, what was the that business that you got accepted for in the accelerator that wasn't for kick further that was for something else right uh so it was called at the time we buy incorporated which is actually how we incorporated the business and the, the theory the theory behind the business model has changed a little bit but yeah okay. it was it was still the same idea of hmm. um I see. I would say, if anything, it was maybe a bit of a bigger idea where we were talking about how to open up physical product entrepreneurship to everyone. It was kind I of see. like a distributed commerce idea. And okay. then we kind of really zoomed in on the funding of inventory piece once we got out to Colorado and started talking to businesses and saw, you know, where was the real problem that we could solve. Okay. So it was, it was kick further, but just in a different form, a little bit different name. Who's we? You had some co founders? Yeah. Um, so in the very early stages, my sister helped me with the pitch out to uh, Miller Lite Tap the Future. So she helped me with the design and all the graphics and stuff like that. Um, and then when we incorporated, accelerators don't like uh, solopreneurs. So that's like one of the things they look for teams that have co-founders. So I remember I applied to the accelerator and they're like, you have a technical co-founder, right? Like you can't create a website without somebody that knows how to code. And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course yeah. I have one. He'll yeah, be on yes. the next call. Right. <laughs> and then that night I go on Reddit and I'm like, who wants to start a company with me? Like, <laughs> and that's like literally how it happened. I put my business model and I, I essentially pitched Reddit on the web development subreddit. <laughs> and I found my co-founder uh, through Reddit. We had like three or four phone calls he hopped on the next uh, virtual interview. And then the first time I met him in person, we we were moving into the same apartment in Colorado. That was my <laughs> first in-person meeting with my co-founder. <laughs> Is he still involved in the business? Uh, we parted ways about 18 months into it. Yeah. Okay, 18 months into it. Okay, now hopefully when you parted ways after 18 months, he left with a very small piece and doesn't own like a giant portion of the company at this point. Well, at this point, you know, it's like after several rounds of dilution, right? Like uh, yeah, it all kind yeah. of, everyone okay. got crunched down. Um, he vested, yeah. you know, we had a standard 4-1 vesting schedule. So if you look okay. at 18 months and you're talking 18 out of 48, you know, that's like uh, more than a third. So he vested for a pretty significant chunk of the equity we granted. And, mm. uh, you know, to a certain extent, I'm like, look, those first 18 months are the most important, right? If, if I didn't have him as a co-founder, 
I'd be nowhere right now. Right. So I don't, I don't begrudge him any of the equity that he earned. He was a, he was a critical part of, of what we did in those early days. That's a nice, that's a nice comment, Sean. If we have a few beers, you can tell me what you really think. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Let, let's don't go burn back. any bridges. That's my philosophy. You know, you're right, bro. I mean, you know, we could talk about this particular topic of early co-founders coming in, grabbing equity and then leaving. And then the other co-founders work their ass off for the next five years. And, you know, that's a whole, we could do a whole show on that. Right. Um, yeah. and, and how to draw up the operating agreement or the cap table to protect yourself from that happening. Um, there are different ways. If you're listening to this episode and you're thinking about taking on an entrepreneur early on, there are different ways to protect yourself to grab some equity back, uh, depending on how you set it up. Uh, so if you're listening to this episode and you want to email Ryder Flex and ask me some questions around that, we can get into it, but I don't want to do a whole yeah. show on that. And um, I'll just share, I wish I had this resource when I was getting started. There's this, the, the National Venture Capital Association has template documents for everything. Yeah. So if you're looking Perfect. for vesting agreements, anything like that, NVCA, I think it's nvca.com or .org. Um, and they've got everything you need templated for you. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there's there's great ways to kind of try to protect yourself a little bit. Um, let me go back just a tad. The idea, though, like what what, what are you like? Uh, are you at Rutgers? You're like, uh, you know, I don't know. You're at a bar with some friends. And you're like, I got this idea. And then you like call your dad. I mean, what, what how did it? I just want to make sure I know how it formulated into originally applying was that just you and who are you talking to about it well so this was one of those things so you i often talk to entrepreneurs that are like how'd you get like how'd you get the idea right it comes up pretty often and the reality is is i was running another business and it was a super normal like regular business right like i was in sourcing so i knew how to operate a supply chain and it was like oh you know what's what's much more profitable than selling supply chain services is actually running a product business, right? A merchandising company. So I started my own merchandising company. I was running my own supply chain. We had 600,000 of sales in the first year, which for me as like a 20 something year old was amazing, right? I cleared uh, $180,000 of net revenue in that uh, first year. So I was very happy with that. Um, So what was the name of that company? That was called CPG Merchandising. So China you, Performance Group Merchandising. Were you the sole owner or were, were your parents, did your parents help you get that? Go? How'd you, was it just you? Yeah, it was just me. I mean, we filed Delaware LLC, cost like a couple hundred bucks. Um, I had relationships from when I was sourcing. So I had already started to build out a few of these relationships. Um, and we went out there, you know, our main client at the time was Hayband, which is like a like a catalog retailer, right? So not like the sexiest products, but stuff people were still buying. Our, our number one seller was a 36 inch fiber optic Christmas tree that spun, you know? So like stuff like that, right? Okay, so let me let me take a deep breath here. By the way, that mic you're working on is a little bit hot. If you get too close up, mic's a little bit hot, so be careful leaning in. But um, uh, if you lean in too close to it, it's, it's jamming up on us. Um, All right. Real quick, I want to make sure I take a deep breath here. So let me make sure, tell me if this is right. Going to Rutgers, you know you want to be an entrepreneur. You're taking the philosophy classes, whatever. You're like, yeah, cool. I'll go to class, but I really, I want to be an entrepreneur. You're trying things. You're playing around. You're working for your parents a little bit with their company, part-time, whatever. You're learning how to do sourcing. While you're doing that, at some point, you're like, I'm going to start my own thing that's kind of tied to what I learned in the sourcing called CPG merchandising. You get that rolling 
with very little uh, upfront cash needed. And you had some contacts and, and things and you knew some things working with your parents' business. Got CPG merchandising rolling, made some early money, learned a bunch of stuff about business. Um, and then while you were doing that, the idea started formulating for kick further. Did I get it right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's like, you think, well, we were doing this merchandising company in the first year, we would get like an order for, let's say a hundred thousand dollars of these Christmas trees. Right. And then you have to go, you have to pay your factory in China. They're not going to make the, the things for you. Right. If they don't get paid, cause they don't trust you. So you have to come up with, let's say, you know, $50,000. And then you need to come up with another $20,000 to release the inventory after it's been shipped, right? Like something like that. And so that's like 70 grand. So there's always with physical product companies, there's always this startup cost of needing some capital, right? And so I was very fortunate that I had my family business, my parents were like, okay, this is fine. We'll support you. And they have essentially were providing like interest-free finance, right? They had their China office would pay the factory. I would pay them off, right? And then we just kept accounts square like that. Um, But then as the business grew, we went from having $100,000 POs and needing like, let's say 50 to 70K of funding to having $300,000 POs, right? And then we would need 150 to $210,000 of funding. And suddenly it started to impact the cash flow of the main sourcing office. And so at that point, my parents were like, you know, look, you need to go out and figure out another solution because even if we can float you today, right? You just like project out another one or two years of growth and we're gonna be out of the water. So you need an inventory funding solution that's gonna work for you for next year, right? Because we're gonna be tapped out like by the end of this year. And when I went out to market to find the inventory funding solution that could, t- that could carry me through the projected growth I had for the business, there was just nothing available. And it was like, mm-hmm. wow, that seems like this huge problem where every single vendor, every product business I talk to has the same problem that they have mm-hmm. to finance their inventory. They have to pay their factories before yes. they can start to make money, right? And it's like, how, how is there no good solution, right? There's no, like, nobody's that figured it out of how to fund inventory. And so that seems like a much bigger opportunity. Um, so we started kick further. Wow. That, okay. Now that's a great story. I really appreciate you tying all that together. So kind of your parents were the first kick further, uh, 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 investors, right. To, to, I'm mean, kind of like, if you really think about it, like they were the original ones floating the cash for, for product and inventory. And then you're like, wait a minute, I need to, they, like you said, you talked to them and you turned it into the business. Wow. I love that story. Um, okay. Very good. So they were also you, actually the first kick for other investors because they wrote the first check oh, after we okay. got out of the accelerator. I, just was, I was about to ask you. All right. So you got <laughs> accepted into the accelerator. Can you tell the listeners that don't know? So you get accepted into the accelerator. You moved to Boulder with this dude. You don't know that you're moving into an apartment with like, you barely know, you barely know him. He's your co-founder. You're moving in together. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, will you tell people how that works for the for folks that may not know? Like when they hear you say "got accepted to the accelerator," it, it, for for the commoners and the laymen out there, tell them what what does that mean? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, so an accelerator is essentially it's like a business crash course, right? So all of the accelerators are different. Some of them are focused on you know uh, software. Some of them are focused on physical goods. It, 
you know, every, you just Google, right? Like what is an accelerator? Do the same homework I did. That's going to provide you a better overview than I can in, in a quick podcast, but that's, that's what it is. It's a business accelerator. So you have an idea, a business plan, maybe some customers, maybe some revenue, and they have a whole bunch of mentors and investors and theoretically expertise in how to scale up or grow or accelerate your business to take you from, you know, if you're at A, they want to take you to like, you know, E, F, or G, right? And then, and then these accelerators, they typically culminate in what they call a demo day. And the demo day, you go out and you pitch to their network of investors, and then their investors essentially can approach you after the demo day to say, hey, I'd like to invest in your company to continue to support your growth or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and typically these accelerators are like three month long programs. Okay. So it's very, it's a very condensed schedule. Um, you're meeting people every day, mentors, potential investors. It's a lot of fun too. Um, you know, what, what piece did they take? How much ownership did they, did they grab? So accelerators uh, vary. It depends on which one you go to. They have different structures. The one when we went into Boomtown, and I don't know what their deal is today because we were cohort number two, um, they took 6% for $20,000. Okay. So early on your cap table and ownership, it was you, your co-founder had a piece. They had a piece. Your parents probably had a piece. Was there any, any other early cash in there? So when we were in the accelerator, it was it was just me, uh, my co-founder, and Boomtown. My parents didn't have a piece then, and then didn't, after didn't. the accelerator, yeah, we re raised our first round, and then they invested after we got out of the accelerator. What was that conversation like with your with your mom and dad at the at the kitchen table? Where you're like, look, just I need I need what what'd you ask them for by the way? What'd you say? Ten grand, fifteen grand? Well, I can't remember. Or was it a lot we got, so we raised our first round was 575,000. Um, we not all from my parents. They, they gave us 30 K on that okay. Um, okay. to get us started on that. And was your, uh, was your dad like, Hey man, this is part of my retirement. Don't mess this up. <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty much. I mean, a little bit of that. The other thing is that we got out of demo day. We had a term sheet on the table for $500,000. So oh, that's really? the key. Oh. That's like a, a piece of the story where we got out of the accelerator. We had an offer for half a million dollars. I see. And then with that offer in hand, which, you know, we had the deck and all of the materials and everything was prepared. Right. So I ran the exact same pitch and investor presentation for my parents um, and my co-founder's mom. So my parents provided 30 K my co-founder's mom invested 20 and that was like enough where we were like, look, we can raise this money ourselves as a friend and family round, and we can retain a lot more control and equity of our business than taking this easy $500,000 that was being offered to us. Oh, let's take a deep breath right there for the listeners. Great lesson, great advice. Really appreciate you sharing that. You're absolutely right, bro. If you would have taken that 500 grand, I mean, who knows what would, have, what would have happened, right? I mean, it probably wouldn't be the same thing today. Uh, something would have, I don't know, it could have went bad. But, uh, wow, was that a tough decision? Was that, were, were there some late night uh, happy hours where you're like, damn, 500K. Woo, man, what can we do with that money? And the, was that tough for you or you just knew right away, I'm not doing that? It was, it was definitely tough. Um, and you know, it's also like, it's not just you, you've got a co-founder and other people that have been working with you. It's just crazy. It's like six months prior to getting the offer for 500 K I was, you know, literally didn't have anything, no code, no revenue, no customers, you know, pretty much not a business plan, just lost a pitch competition. Right. Like, 
And, and you go from that six months later, you have people that want to value your business at, you know, one and a half million dollars. And that feels great, right? Like, wow, I created something worth one and a half million um, in six months. Like, wow, that feels so good. Right. And it makes you really feel like, uh, like, like, like the cock of the walk, you know, <laughs> but, um, but then, you know, it's kind of like sobering where you look at like the terms and anybody that's going to come right. in, at least with my experience, my experience was that people that are coming in very early with big checks like that, they also have very restrictive covenants. Right. And Absolutely. then when we did, we kind of did the math and it was like, it's like, wait, we're giving up board control in the first round that we're ever going to do, like when the business is six months old, we're going to give up control of the board. That doesn't seem smart. Right. And then like you do a little bit of research and it's like, wow, yeah, you can, if you have a bad investor early on that can kill you. Right. It's like, and and if you have, if you give up board control, you can get fired out of your own business. And it's like, why would I introduce that risk? You know, uh, if I don't (laughs) have to, Especially that early, right? I mean, you're, you're taking away all the fun of actually having control of the cap table. Yeah, because, you know, as soon as you take enough cash to lose uh, control of, of the board votes, I mean, you're, you're essentially really not in charge at that point. I mean, maybe the board kind of plays along like, okay, you're the CEO, you're still running the day-to-day, but, you know, they can, take, they can call at any time and tell you to do something different. So, cool. I'm glad you made that decision. By the way, are you, st- are you still in control today or you've taken on several more rounds now and the cap table looks totally different? Can you share that? It's, uh, it's equal. So it's, we have a five person board um, with one independent vote, two company seats and two investor seats. Okay. You've learned a lot about managing the cap table, huh? And the, and the, and the board over the last few years. <laughs> you better if you want to survive, right? <laughs> <laughs> How many investors can you share that? How many how many people are you having to 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 call every quarterly and say, okay, here's where we're at and all this? What's it? We don't uh, so we don't we don't do investor calls. That's uh, so I okay. I create a deck for the board meetings and yeah. then I update that deck with some of the performance metrics and I share that as a stakeholder update. So that's yeah. like that's a nice way of just doubling up on the work, right? You have to get the stuff ready for the board anyway, and then you send it out to all of the stakeholders. Yeah. But we have I don't know like. I want to say 75 to a hundred lines on our cap table. It's aggressive. Yeah. Cause we, we didn't come into this with like a, I didn't come into this with a big venture network. Right. So our first, Mm. our first round had 24 people in the first 575 K round, you know, and in the early days, it's like you take the checks where you can get them. Right. So we were Mm. taking $10,000 here, you know, like $15,000 there, pretty much what we could get. Mm-hmm. 75 to 90 uh, lines on your cap table. That's a lot. Uh, you know, would you, what, what advice would you give to anybody listening right now? Would you, what tips would you give them? Would you say, Hey, try to keep it less than that. Or, or, you know, Hey, uh, you know, managing that is a pain in the ass. What would you say about it? Well, a lot of those lines are also kick further um, team members, right? So uh, one of our philosophies in, at kick further is that everybody gets a piece, right? Oh, so from the very beginning, we've, we've had every single uh, person we've hired has been given a little piece of equity. As long as they stayed with the organization for at least a year, they would okay. vest. And for me, it's like one of those things where it is addition, there's additional complication and, you know, mm-hmm. expense and you have to spend resources to maintain a cap table that 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 is that large. Um, I think that we have uh, received commensurate value or more uh, because people 
like the philosophy and they appreciate the culture of being a part of the outcomes of what they work for. Right. Okay. So it's like, Hey, when you work at somewhere else, you get your salary with kick further. You can also own a piece of those outcomes, right? Like Very hopefully good. providing our, hopefully providing our team members with a, with a path out of the rat race as well, you know, like a little bit of that ownership too. That's great. Is it drawn up on the, on the op- operating agreement, like class A, class B, non-voting, voting? Is that how you, you have it designed? We just have common and preferred. So we only have two classes of stock okay. and, um, you know, preferred is for the investors. They get liquidation preference. We've kept it pretty clean. You know, you can okay. see some, some different classes of stock that have like significant differences. Ours is just as a liquidation preference. So it's pretty clean. Total cash raised so far since the life of the business? 10.9 million. Wow. How about that, my friend? Seven, almost eight years in, oh, no, wait, no. Yeah, eight years in business. Uh, you're still the CEO. You, you've raised that much cash and you're managing a pretty large cap table. That's not easy, my friend. Congratulations on that. I mean, uh, you know, really, I mean, that's that's something to be super proud of. Well, can you talk to us about revenue? Can you share? I know it's a private company. I don't know how much you want to, do you want to share revenue size or employee size? Give the people, uh, you know, give the listeners an idea of how big the company is today. Yeah. So we've grown a lot is what I'll say. Um, when we got to Buffalo at the start of 2019, we were a six person team today. We are 26 people. Um, in terms of revenue, we should be tracking this year. We're looking at, uh, about two and a half million. I would say is what we right. should be doing in 2021. And right. we're tracking at roughly a hundred percent growth year over year. So that's kind of the, the high level metrics there. Very nice. You know, you didn't, you didn't come up through the ranks as an executive for some fortune 500 company before you started this. So you kind of had to, I mean, you had your parents though, as mentors and you watched them, watched them their whole lives. And so that was huge, I'm sure. But you've kind of had to, you know, you've had to teach yourself through mentors how to be a CEO and grow this thing, right? It wasn't like you were a SVP for a Fortune 500 company before this, right? You, you know, what advice would you give the listeners on, on becoming a, a CEO and, and, and you know, and, and what you've learned from the growth of the company so far in that position? Um, you know, early CEOs, what would you tell them? Uh, you know, what you said, right, which is just, you're gonna have to learn a lot. So adopt a growth mindset, um, both personal growth and and professional growth, and Mm. stay humble, and recognize that you don't have to reinvent everything, right? There's actually a lot of really smart people out there that have solved a lot of the problems that you encounter in your day to day, other people have encountered them, and they've solved them, right? So educate yourself, um, And at the same time, don't allow yourself to get stuck in analysis paralysis, right? There's a point where you've gotten all of the information or 99% of the information that you're going to have, and you just have to make a decision and move forward and deal with the consequences of it, right? So those are like, those are the two pieces. One is educate yourself, get the best available information to make the best possible decisions. And then step two is make those decisions and move on, right? Like, keep moving forward. Don't get stuck. Right. And I think those are the two pieces of advice I would offer. Wonderful. Great advice, Sean. 
right now would probably be a great time to give the listeners like the elevator pitch, you know, uh, kick further as it stands today for, for everybody listening saying, wow, this is a cool story, but what is kick further again? Why don't you give them the quick uh, three minute elevator pitch? And by the way, for the listeners, it's kickfurther.com, kickfurther.com. Uh, go for it, Sean, tell us. Yeah, so kick further, we solved that problem that I described earlier, which is every product business has the same issue. You have to pay your factory to make your stuff before you can start to earn revenue by selling it. And the way kick further solves that problem is we have created a marketplace where we have a community of users that are very uh, excited to fund inventory for product businesses at cost. So you want to sell a thousand doodads. You've got a factory, they're willing to make it for you, but you need to pay them $10 a piece to make the doodads, right? So you come to kick further, you raise $10,000. That's $10 per piece, right? Times a thousand pieces. Um, our community provides the $10,000. They are buying the inventory at cost. We go to your factory and we say, hey, here's $10,000. Please produce a thousand units for the business. We have those pieces produced, shipped to the business. And then as the business sells through the doodads, like let's say we ship them a thousand pieces and then there's only 900 left after a couple of weeks of selling them, we issue a consignment invoice. And then the business pays the consignment invoice, um, which we then distribute pro rata to the people that funded the inventory at cost. So essentially the business gets the inventory they need to sell, $0 out of pocket, and then as they sell through the inventory, they pay their community of users back with an increase on the cost uh, from the proceeds of the sale. So it's pay as you sell inventory funding for businesses. How do you guys make money? What's your business model? We earn a 5% funding success fee when the, the deal successfully funds. And if you compare that like on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, right? It's like, there's like, they have their success fee and then they have a transaction fee. Uh, which normally it'll translate to like 10% total cost. Kick further is 5% all in, including transaction costs for the business. Okay, 5%. So you guys get 5% when it's funded. So no risk for you because you're not going to make a move unless it gets funded, right? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I love that model. Uh, what about the people that give money? Uh, the individuals that, you know, if, if I want to put in a thousand bucks, uh, what's my risk and what's my payback? Uh, so if you want to put in a thousand bucks, your risk is based on which company you decide to fund. So we have businesses that are on their, you know, 40th plus deal and they have, you know, 40 successful completions on the platform, you know, use your own judgment as, as to what that risk is, right? Um, okay. In terms of what happens when the inventory doesn't sell, let's say you fund a bunch of comforters uh, and you put in a thousand bucks and you fund 20 comforters for $50 each. Mm -hmm. If the inventory doesn't sell and we get possession of the inventory back, we'll reach out to you, Steve, and we'll say, hey, you've got 20 comforters. Do you want to pay shipping? And we'll have these comforters sent to your house, right? Because you're actually funding the physical goods and you could elect to take delivery of them. Um, you can imagine our larger business, our larger users that are putting in $10,000, $20,000 into these inventory runs are not really interested in taking delivery of like two pallet loads of inventory. So we also provide a liquidation option to our users. Um, 
but if we go through liquidation, you know, liquidation is going to be pennies on the dollar, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're pretty happy if we get five cents on the dollar, if we have to put inventory through a liquidation. I see. So I could get some money back if you had to liquidate it, um, but I could lose some cash. Obviously it isn't it's just like the stock market. I mean, there's a risk here. Um, how soon do I get money back? And, and, and if it does sell, what am I making? What's my interest on the, on the thousand? Yeah. So it depends. Um, you can make, uh, we have deals, probably deals live right now that are offering about 2% a month. So, you know, you could see a deal might be, we just funded a deal that was 20% with an expected selling period of 9.5 months, which means if you put in a thousand dollars, you would expect to get $1,200 back in about 9.5 months. If the inventory sells through. I mean, 20% um, return is great. I mean, do, are they all like that? <laughs> there's so our average is anywhere between uh, our average is, is one to 2% a month. So 2% is high, I would say, uh, but okay, there's okay. plenty of deals that are offering 1% a month. What percentage of deals crash and you have to liquidate? We have a 2.2% cancellation loss rate. So after you take into account the fact that most of the businesses, they don't fail to sell all of their inventory. So even when they have problems, they'll normally sell through 30 or 40% and we'll have like a significant amount of paybacks. Um, and then after liquidation, we end up with about a 2.2% cancellation loss rate, which you know um, washes out for, for the successful deals. If I'm the, the, the company, so I'm the business owner, um, I'm having, to, what do I have to do? What do I factor in? your five percent into my margins basically is that what i'm trying to do is that, okay so i actually think it's the, i think our way of accounting for finance is the easiest compared to anything else because it's literally is it, it represents an increase in your cost of goods sold so okay. you take what kick further's funding if your inventory is a dollar per piece right we fund it at uh, a, you know, another five cents. So that's a dollar five plus mm -hmm. you offer 6% to your community. Now your cost of goods sold is $1 and 11 cents per piece. Everything else in your business model flows through the same. I see. All right. So, so my, my cogs basically are, are dependent on what I'm offering the investors and what I'm offering you guys. A couple of questions right. you mentioned earlier that you contact the factory or the manufacturer. Do you guys manage the relationship? Do you do you find and source the supplier overseas and I don't have to mess with any of that if I'm the business owner? No, uh, we uh, work. So okay. the businesses will say like, <laughs> no, not that level of service. No. <laughs> okay. So no, I still got to find my supplier and stuff. And then I enter and then, and then somehow you're, you're connected to them a little bit because there's funds traveling back and forth between you and them. But yeah, you I'm, would provide us a quote, right? So you say, Hey, supplier ABC, right. Wants, you know, $10,000 to make my inventory and you provide us a quote. We reach out to your supplier. We verify the info. And then, you know, if everything's good, then your supplier gets paid and you get the inventory. Okay. Um, you said if you said earlier, you said if we can get the inventory back, we'll liquidate it. You use the word if. Are there what is what when you say that? Do you mean uh, the, the the company like has the inventory in a warehouse somewhere and the doors are locked and they're not letting you get it and shit like that? <laughs> uh, so that's it's actually what we found is that the industry actually plays 
we haven't had to get into a fight with a warehouse okay. yet. So that's one of the things where we found that the warehouse, like they've got their own protections, you know, and there's normally significant other inventory assets for the businesses we're working with. Right. So we're, we'll be funding maybe a hundred thousand dollars out of 300 or $400,000 of inventory for these businesses that we're working with. Right. We don't necessarily provide all of the inventory funding. Um, where we typically encounter issues is with a business that sells through the inventory and then Uh-oh. uses the proceeds for something else, right? So it's like you can't get in trouble with Kick Further as long as you don't breach our contract, right? As long as you pay us when you're supposed to, there's no way the Kick Further contract can send a business into bankruptcy because the worst case scenario is that you're required to return the inventory to Kick Further, right? That has 0% chance of bankrupting a business. The only way that that happens is if you sell our stuff, convert the money, which is a crime, right? They're, you're using our money it's to do something else with it, right? Buy ads because you think you'll be able to turn it over again. And then that fails, right? And then that constitutes a breach of contract. And then we have to go pursue that business. So in that Sounds case, like- it's like there is no inventory left to possess, right? And that's, that's where we encounter issues. Sounds like over the last seven years, maybe that's happened a couple of times. yeah and you know for us it's like one of those things where when every time it happens we go back and we look at um we have a checklist scorecard and we say how could we have how could we have identified this risk on the front end some sometimes you just can't right like that's Mm -hmm. the reality is that product businesses are risky and entrepreneurship is risky right so sometimes there's no way and things just go you know sideways um but we get smarter and smarter over time you know I'd love to have one of those recordings when you, when Sean's like, Sean's calling up Bobby and he's like, yo, Bobby, what, what, what the hell, man? Well, you sold all the inventory. Where's my cash at? <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's like with technology, what, what you do is you just, uh, you just build around it. Right. So it's like, yeah. you can get to the point where you're tied into the transaction s- stream so that they don't have the opportunity right, to convert go. the money. There and so that's go. what we're building towards right now. And uh, okay. the platform will be stronger when we get there. Yeah, there's a lot more protections there. But so, okay. But now keep in mind when you're, let's, I want to walk through that scenario just for a second before I ask you a couple. I know we're almost out of time. Damn, I could talk to you for another two hours. In that case, let, let's, let's say uh, somebody, uh, you know, they sold the product, they didn't give you the cash, which you need to then fund back to the investors. Um, but you're protected, right? You already, you got your five, your 5%, you already put in your bank. So so really what you're doing is you're having to chase down that cash to protect the investors. Yeah. And you know, we do. So the other thing for our users is, is it's totally free to use the kick further platform, but we do charge um, effectively a processing fee when payments come back from the business. Right. So it's good for us when businesses pay and complete their deals as well. Okay. All right. Very good. Any competition? I mean, I know there's so many uh, uh, ways to crowdfund and different, you know, companies and hell, I can't even keep up with them. What, do, mm-hmm. do you have, I don't know, I don't, you don't have to mention the competition, but do you have a lot of competition in this area? Do you care about that? And if you do, how are you different? So I actually, I don't think we have any true competition in terms of people that are operating a inventory crowdfunding platform, right? Mm-hmm. Where where Steve, you can participate and I can participate and any of your listeners can go participate and fund product businesses. I think Kickfurther is relatively unique in that. Um, that being said, 
there's plenty of people that are lending to small businesses, right? You've got mm -hmm. Clearco, Blue Sky, Amazon Capital, Shopify Capital, PayPal Capital, you know, you pick it. If they're processing payments, they probably have a capital arm. Um, you know, obviously banks are doing a lot in the space as well. So you just look at who's funding small and medium businesses and that's kind of who we consider our competitors. Okay, I got gotcha. you. How many um, applications from people that want to uh, get some money for inventory are you getting like, I don't know how you measure that. Is that weekly, monthly, yearly? Like how many people apply and then what percentage of the people that apply get approved? So we have uh, about 700 applications per quarter right now. That's one of those wow. things that we look and we wow. want to ramp up. Wow. Wow. That's not bad. Could be better though. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we, and we'll fund, like we're funding about 60, uh, 60 new businesses ish um, every, every quarter or so. A little less than there. 10%, a little less than 10%. That yeah, apply, that get sounds get right approved. to me. From get the approved. very beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. When they don't get approved, what's the most common reason? Um, so like probably the most common reasons is that they're just not a fit for our consignment or they're too early. So, you know, people will come to us when they've got 120K of trailing 12 months revenue. Our minimum is 150. Um, or we currently are staying away from things like no refrigerated or frozen goods, no alcohol, tobacco, firearms. So restricted goods, um, non-US based businesses or too early, I think are the reasons we see declines. I see. So no cannabis and uh, CBD or anything yet. So we have done CBD, um, I believe, because the federal law has changed on CBD. And so now like CBD is like federally legal, as I understand yeah. it. Um, yeah. But yeah, no so. cannabis, no THC. No. OK. Would you if, if, if it goes if that goes if federally approved, you would, though? So probably still not because we're we essentially it's like um, if it requires a license to sell or distribute we want to stay away from it, which is why we don't do any alcohol either. You know, it's not nothing to do with the philosophy behind it, just the, you know, kind of the way it works, you know, makes it hard to sell or distribute the inventory. Okay, very good. What's, what's the most challenging thing for you right now, Sean, personally, in, in your role? What's the toughest thing for you on a daily basis? Well, that's a super interesting question. Um, so, we just, we had a good amount of success recently. You know, I don't know if you saw, but we, we, we announced that we closed a $5.9 million round this year wow. with Tom Galisano in January. So, yes. you know, as CEO, it's kind of like you're in this uh, hamster wheel of fundraising your entire life, right? Of like, where's the next dollar come from? How much runway do I have? You know, do I have enough to fund the growth and the marketing and this and that? And, you know, so it feels like, at least in my experience, I was always looking at, less than 12 months of runway, right? Like a ticking clock. And it was always kind of like, how do I make sure that that time on the clock doesn't run out before I accomplish what we need to do, right? And today um, we're in a really good position where that, you know, it's like 48 months of time on that clock, right? So there's a lot of time on the clock now. And that gives me the opportunity to focus on things that are important, not urgent. So I would say like what I'm doing right now and the most challenging thing is I'm learning a ton. I'm in like deep discovery mode on a bunch of topics that 
I'm relatively new to like stuff like public equities and things like that, um, which are becoming very interesting for me. You still go to your mom and dad for regular advice to call them up and you're like, Hey, what about this? What about that? <laughs> uh, it, it, they've started coming to me for advice at this point. You know? <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. You, uh, now your siblings aren't involved. No, no brothers or sisters involved in your business. Uh, no, they. So my brother invested in that first round that my parents participated in as well. So okay. he's an investor. Um, but no, I'm the only one that works in the business. You're married. I am. Yep. And you live in Buffalo with your wife. Any kids? No kids, uh, two dogs, but, uh, but no kids. Yeah. Living in Buffalo. Is your wife involved in the business? No, she is a, a writer. Oh, she's a writer. Oh, okay. Very good. Right. How'd you guys meet? Um, so <laughs> that's a long story. Uh, essentially we met on the beach when we were like 14 years old in, in oh, Italy. Oh, really? Wow. You've known <laughs> her for that long. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's pretty cool. I know we're almost out of time. Two final questions. If, uh, if you could call the kid, um, that was, uh, dropping out of Rutgers, you know, the day you're like, ah, I'm, I gotta go, I got, I got, I got other stuff to do right before you went to the accelerator in Boulder, if you could call him and tell him anything today, based on what you've learned so far, what would that be? Um, read thinking fast and slow and apply heuristics to your business sooner rather than later. And that's very specific advice for me that created a lot of value for kick further. <laughs> mm, mm, okay. Very good. What's your core purpose in life, Sean? I mean, if you had to define, if you had to put your core purpose into a sentence, you know, why you're walking around on this blue ball in this giant black space, like what, what is your core purpose in life? Um, so there's this, there's this great sentence that's like, I forget who it is there. Somebody says you, every man dies twice, right? When you die and your body leaves, it's, you know, your soul leaves its mortal coil. And the last time somebody says their name. And so I've always kind of said that my purpose is to be immortal in the way that there's will never be a last time that somebody says my name. Ooh. Okay. Very, you want the legacy for sure. Yeah. Legacy okay. builder. That's what I'd like to do. Very good. Well, you're doing it, my friend. Congratulations on everything you've done so far. Super happy for you. Thank you, Steve. Uh -huh.